do very much. Welcome everyone. It's wonderful to see everyone here today. We came really close to having Brother Schmidt here this morning. He messaged me to tell me he was turned away at the border because the U.S. is not yet open. So he had to go home. He was bummed. Uh, brother, if you're listening, we're bummed. We wish you were here. I'm looking forward to when that restriction will finally completely be dropped. We're thankful that the restriction from Canada has been dropped, so hopefully the U.S. will follow suit soon. I'm going to do a little something different. I'm not going to read the scriptures right off the bat yet, so uh, we're going to start by doing a little bit of a visual exercise. You to look around this sanctuary and look at the walls. When you look at these walls, you will find um, five very colorful banners, will you not? That say Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and glory to God alone. These banners. Uh, are what are known as the five solas of the Reformation, because um, in Latin it's uh, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, and soli deo gloria. And so those five solas became uh, really the summation of Reformation doctrines that led led the church out of the corruptions and the darkness of Rome into a new light of re, of, that uh, goes along with a return to the scriptures. And so as we uh, look ahead to Reformation Sunday, which would be the last Sunday of this month, we have, we have providentially, five Sundays in this month. And so uh, we're going to spend... Each Sunday, taking a brief look at uh, each of the solas in turn, culminating in the last one on Reformation Sunday. But maybe you've wondered why we have those hanging up there. I have had visitors come to the church and have asked, you know, why do you have those here? And sometimes they'll ask, how, can, how come they're all alone? How can they all be alone if there's five of them? And of course, that has to do with the fact that they're each dealing with different theological issues. You may notice in your bulletin a wonderful um, little article by James Montgomery Boyce on the five solos of the Reformation that I hope you'll uh, take time to read another time. Um, and uh, hang on to that as we go through this study this month. I want to begin by reading from an article by a gentleman named Ryan McGraw. He's connected with Ligonier Ministries, in an article uh, that's on the Ligonier site called What are the Five Solas, he makes this observation. The five solas were not exactly Reformation slogans. Sometimes we think that all of the Reformers were out there shouting these five things. Uh, They were not. Um, They do serve, however, uh, Dr. McGraw says, as a good summary of the Reformed faith. Neither Martin Luther nor John Calvin nor any other Protestant reformer summarized his teachings in a tidy list, including Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone. 
taking flight in the 19th and 20th centuries, this five-fold summary became the shorthand version of what is known as Reformed theology. And while this description of the Reformed faith came later, it still captures well the core of the gospel in all its graciousness and Christ-centeredness, just as it is revealed in the scriptures. These five solas show the glory of God's gracious way of salvation in a way that sets the tone for true theology, resounding in how we think and live in this world, unquote. So as we look at each of these solas this month, uh, week by week, we're going to attempt to briefly do it one sola a Sunday. Pray for me in that. It's really hard. Uh, um, we're going to try to discern its biblical foundations, each one, and the historical roots of each one, and the theological and practical implications for how we think and live in this world, as Dr. McGraw put it. And we will again wrap this up, Lord willing, on Reformation Sunday. So we're going to begin with Sola Scriptura, and just uh, for ease of order, we are going to start here, and we're going to work our way around the room, and we will end up, as I said, with glory to God alone. It's a centuries-old debate, tradition <clears throat> versus Scripture. With, and there's a lot of curveballs that are thrown into the mix for good measure. I mean, traditions can have appeals to various scriptural passages, can they not? But they can also really be rooted in human invention, uh, the scriptural passages being ripped out of context and just flung at an idea and say, well, see, the Bible teaches it when it doesn't really. Um, the scripture is sometimes claimed to be authoritative by some, but those folks will add additional writings that they elevate to the same level. Uh, it's a classic uh, characteristic of, of uh, cults here in the West. Tradition does have value. Uh, some people want to just throw tradition off entirely. But no, tradition has value. It can be, it's a record of both proper and improper practices and beliefs. And if we look at those traditions, it can help us to uh, repeat proper practices and beliefs and avoid the others. But tradition can be just slavishly adhered to without real thought, can it not? And the scriptures are always authoritative because they're the word of God. But in, in, in the scenario of the church in our lives, the, the edge of the scripture sword, so to speak, can be blunted by us uh, by confusing and sometimes ridiculous uh, interpretations. Now, when it comes to the doctrine of sola scriptura that developed during the time of the Reformation, it helps to know why that doctrine arose. It, it, it helps to know what exactly is meant by it. Because if you go and just do a quick search online of sola scriptura, uh, many of the uh, initial articles that come up first in the list are all about how horrible this doctrine is. And it's not just, surprisingly, it's not by people who are Catholic or something else. Um, it's by people who think that they're honoring, um, uh, honoring God by uh, a, a false understanding of what this means. We'll talk more about that as we go along. 
And then I also want to talk about, you know, what do we, what do, we do with it? How do we live in accordance with it? Ultimately, the scriptures, we believe, ought to be your only rule of faith and practice, as the Shorter Catechism puts it. Uh, but the Roman church, as you likely know, has a different viewpoint. Now, it may sound like I'm going to be beating up on Rome, and, and uh, I am, actually. Uh, but particularly from the historical aspect of it, because it is out of that context uh, as far as church history is concerned, that the Reformation arose as men uh, attempted to reform the Roman church and bring it back to faithfully uh, adhering to the word of God and, of course, finding themselves to be unsuccessful and often cast out, uh, continued to worship God according to his word, and the Protestant Reformation progressed accordingly. I read an article uh, online by a, a group called The Catholic Company who wanted to speak about this idea of sola scriptura. Um, and I want to read this article to you. This, uh, this is very smooth. The idea of sola scriptura, they say, is one that is very prevalent in Protestant denominations. Sola scriptura is the notion that scripture alone is the foundation of faith and contains all revealed truth in Christianity. The teaching authority of the Catholic Church is obtained both from sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Protestants tend to overlook the importance of sacred tradition in an effort to hold scripture as their sole basis of faith. Catholics do observe sacred scripture with high importance as it is the inspired word of God. It is actually through the eyes of apostolic tradition that scripture can be most fully understood because they are so closely tied. The Second Vatican Council on Divine Revelation says, hence there exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scripture. For both of them, flowing from the same divine wellspring, in a certain way merge into a unity and tend toward the same end. Christ instituted his church as the authentic authority to interpret scripture and to transmit, instruct, and explain the essential tenets of Christianity. It is in this way that the teaching authority of the Catholic Church utilizes both sacred scripture as well as sacred tradition to guide the faithful. Now these are some rather high-sounding words, um, and they actually they have a, a tone of... of of graciousness and patient condescension uh, upon uh, the rest of us, but they're actually full of error and fallacy. Uh, three big ones. First, sola scriptura is not a notion. Uh, it is a fully developed doctrine that challenges the assumed authority of the Roman church head on. One doesn't dismiss notions by murdering those who hold them, which is what the Roman Catholic Church did or tried to do to Protestants without hesitation. <coughs> Martin Luther's words at the Diet of Worms in 1521 set into motion some sentiments upon which all five of the solas are hinged. Words that I think are probably fairly familiar to you. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures, 
or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. May God help me. Amen. So uh, while it sounds like, well, it's just a notion, it's uh, something that they've sort of come up with, as if it's not all that really important, because after all, we have a better way. Um, it, it, it sounds like they're trying to you know, be nice about it, but ultimately, I think as I read that first, that first uh, statement there about that it's a notion, it's a notion that scripture alone is the foundation of faith and contains all revealed truth in Christianity is a problem. Besides the fact that it's a bit of a straw man argument because, which a fallacy, because I don't know of any Protestant that would, I, this is an odd way of putting it, contains all revealed truth in Christianity. Um, do they mean all revealed, all truth in, that Christians believe in the world? Or do they, are they just talking about theology? I'm not really sure. If they want to say that we believe that it's all revealed truth, all Christian truth that God wants us to have, uh, which would um, mean that those that claim further revelation are out of bounds, well then, yeah, well, okay, I'll go with that. But I'm not exactly sure what they mean there. It's not, it's not too clear. Let's think about the second thing here. Um, they assert in this statement that Protestants overlook the importance of tradition. Uh, thoughtful Protestants do not overlook the importance of tradition if they are wise. Uh, this is another straw man fallacy. Uh, the fact is that, uh, by the way, uh, for our younger set in here, a straw man fallacy, a straw man is really easy to knock down. You set up a little straw man and make it, make it just so that it's, it's uh, you can easily knock it down. It doesn't. It's not real, but it's easy to knock down. Um, <clears throat> so we overlook the tradition according to this statement. But uh, creeds and confessions, church history, the thoughts of the fathers—they all have value to the careful student of the Word, because be, the Holy Spirit does not reinvent truth with every generation. His truth, the same truth that he reveals to us, has been revealed to his, his children from day one. And so if we ignore that, uh, that's not very wise. It's not wise at all. A person who ignores what has gone before, frankly, is rather stupid and is doomed to, to repeat uh, errors in practice and belief because they refuse to see what the Spirit of God has, has, uh, has said and done and moved in those who are, who've been wrestling with his word for centuries. Um, but it's confusion here to equate the foundation or the basis of our faith with the improving of it, which is what tradition does. Rome wants to say that tradition, which can speak to and improve upon what God has written, 
uh, is the same and at the same level as the inspired and inerrant Word of God. And that is the, that is the foundation of their faith because they want man's wisdom to join in with God's. Though they'll say, well, it's God's because it's, you know, it's, it's God's people that are saying this. And yet, as Luther pointed out, uh, men and the popes and the councils had erred often and contradicted themselves from one pope to the other. So is it really of God or not? Uh, they, Luther turned the, scholar, the Roman scholars of his day on their ear because they couldn't argue around him. <laughs> and he used the fathers against them to show how their teaching was wrong. Um, in any case, the apostolic tradition that is claimed here by Rome is not about the apostles of Jesus, though they would say its roots are there. They are talking about the church that they erected. They're talking about subsequent popes and bishops and the statements of the councils and the creeds and all those things. And they would claim apostolic authority for all those things, even with errors and contradictions, they would. Um, but uh, that's what they're talking about. They, they believe in ap- the doctrine of apostolic succession, which is uh, that the apostles you know, laid hands on the next generation, the next generation laid hands on the next generation, and so on through the ministry. And, and they do believe that they are the only ones who truly have apostolic succession. They are the only branch of the church that is purely descended from the apostles. Uh, the Orthodox Church would have a big <laughs> objection to that. Not that I agree with their viewpoint on things, but um, yeah, the, but that's what Rome is claiming, and particularly in opposition to the Protestantism. They have to claim that, though. If they don't claim apostolic succession, if they don't say the only tradition that we can hold on to is that apostolic tradition that we have all the rest of their dogma falls apart. Every bit of it. Because they've based so much on the elevated writings and thoughts of men to the same level as the inspired Word of God. Protestants, though, wise Protestants, we are great fans of apostolic tradition. We call that apostolic tradition the New Testament. It's the New Testament. Certainly the Spirit of God then moves in creeds and councils and we think those things have value. But they are not at the level of God's holy word. Third, the statement about the institution of the church, Christ instituted his church as the authentic authority to interpret scripture and to transmit, um, instruct, um, and explain the tenets of Christianity. That's essentially a true statement. It's mostly correct in the way that they put it. The problem with, with it is the totalitarian fashion in which it's applied by Rome. Because Rome does not want to admit that the Holy Spirit communes with people individually. Everything has to come through the, saint, through the church. Everything has to come through that filter, period, or it's not of God. And that goes beyond the scriptures, the whole idea of uh, raising up for a, uh, up to himself a kingdom of priests uh, unto that minister to him. You know, um, 
The Reformers recognize that every true believer is baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so they wanted every plowboy to have a copy of the Bible uh, in his hands. They wanted the scriptures translated into every common tongue. They wanted all believers to know the freedom that comes when the promises of Christ to send the Spirit to teach His children concerning Himself come to fullness in our hearts. But Rome hates that freedom. It hated it then. It hates it now. The reason it hates it is because it... I mean, this statement... It sounds all sweetness and light, but it's insidious. Rome hates that freedom in Christ because it robs it of power that it wields over utterly dependent followers. There is a half-truth in this summary statement. Yes, the Lord appoints apostles, pastors, and teachers, essentially the the institutional structure of the church to... Uh, be caretakers of the word and to mature uh, God's people. Uh, But they forget to mention that believers are also commanded, individual believers are commanded to be careful students of the word themselves as well so that they can discern if what their teachers are saying to them is true to the word or not. This Rome cannot bear because it is essentially trying to assume the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Now the Westminster Assembly uh, wonderfully summarizes truly orthodox Christianity in the shorter catechism. Really, confession and catechisms. But in the shorter catechism, we have this question. This is question number two. Right after the, probably the most famous one, what is man's chief end? The next one is, well, that logically follows. If that's our chief end to glorify God, how do, we, how do we know how to do that? And the second question says, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? And the answer is, the Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. And they base that on such biblical statements as Paul's in Galatians chapter 1, where he says, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Um, An author named uh, Matthew Barrett wrote a book called God's Word Alone, The Authority of the Scripture. And he made this observation. Sola Scriptura, means that Scripture alone is our final authority. Authority is a bad word in our day of rugged individualism. This goes right along with what we were talking about in Sunday school, does it not? Um, But the Bible is all about authority. In fact, sola scriptura means that the Bible is our chief, supreme, and ultimate authority. Notice, however, that I didn't say the Bible is our only authority. Sola scriptura is too easily confused today with Nuda Scriptura, they have view that we should have no creed but the Bible. And this is where people object to the, the doctrine. Um, those who sing this mantra believe that creeds, confessions, the voices of tradition, and those who hold ecclesiastical offices carry no authority in the church. But this was not the Reformers' position, nor should it be equated with sola 
scriptura. It really is. Uh, though the, the, that article that I read to you from the Catholic company had the idea that it kind of suggested that it was by the, the tradition that adds to content. This is not about content. It's about authority. Let me say that again. It's not about content. And content's a whole other issue. All that can be examined. But authority is the issue. What is the foundation of our belief? Is it what God has said or what God or God plus? What's it going to be? Now, if you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Isaiah and turn to chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, and I'm going to read to you a passage that as I go along, uh, at first you may wonder, why did you choose this particular passage as a text to think about this subject? But I think it will become abundantly clear to you as uh, I roll along. We're going to begin at verse 11, and I will read down through chapter 9 and verse 2. This is in the context of uh, there's an invasion coming. It's being promised because of Israel's rebellion. Invasion by the Assyrians who are going to come and take them captive. Verse 11 says, For Yahweh spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be uh, snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for Yahweh who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will become enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. God adds his blessing to the reading of his word. Our text is verse 20. To the teaching and the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. I will not take time this morning to do a careful look through all of the judgments and so on that were going on. I want to summarize them as we focus upon 
this aspect of sola scriptura. These words are written in the middle of a, a dreadful description of a people who have abandoned their covenant Lord. They no longer fear him. They've left his revelation behind. They think themselves to be free of his restraints, but they live in a paranoid terror of dangers that are real or imagined. They're subject to inescapable judgment. They're experiencing silence at the hand of Yahweh. They're distressed. They're hungry. They're irrationally rebellious. They're idolatrously looking to the creation and even the dead for answers. And with nothing but anguish, uh, they desire deliverance. And it is far from them. Our text puts it this way. They have no, no dawn or there is no light in them. A number of years ago, quite a few years ago, I was traveling from Buffalo, New York to uh, somewhere. But I was flying through St. Louis. had that first leg. Um, and I, <laughs> I sat next to a lady who it turned out... Um, she was Sicilian. I knew this because um, she was happy to tell me about that. And we, as we were chit-chatting a little bit, uh, getting to know each other as seatmates, she, uh, she uh, was chatty because she was nervous. She'd never flown before. Um, and um, she, she latched onto me literally. When the plane took off, she had very long fingernails. And I had the marks in my arm for a couple of days. I'm not kidding. Uh, and, uh, and then when we landed, I forgot about that until we landed and she did it to me again. I had forgotten to move my arm. But anyway, when I told her I was a pastor, she, um, she, was, she really got interested. She was like, well, um, what's the difference between... Um, Bible Presbyterianism, because I told her what church I was with, and, and the Roman Catholic Church, her church. And I was like, oh, Lord, help. Here we go. Got two hours. Um, and so um, I started in a little bit and started talking to her about some of the things and, and went to this issue of authority and where, our found, where is the basis of everything. Because if that's not accepted, then talking about all the rest of the stuff doesn't make a hill of beans worth of difference. But if you come to agreement on what the authority is, then you can talk. Uh, by the way, that's good for any cult or false teaching. Start with authority. Always start with authority. You're wasting your breath if you go beyond that and there's no agreement. Um, it got to be almost funny. Because she would say, uh, well, my church believes, da, 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 whatever it was. And I'd say, well, but the Bible says, da, 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 da. Hmm. so we talked about that for a while. Then she'd say, well, my church believes this. And I'd say, well, but the Bible believes, da, 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 da. and this went on back and forth for quite a while. And it got to the point where she then said it and said, well, my church believes something, something, something. And then I opened my mouth to go, and she goes, but the Bible says. 
Yeah. And we were able then to talk about the Bible as a supreme authority and not popes, not councils, not in particular uh, the Roman councils, Vatican and, and so on. Um, you know, that, that issue of authority, this poor lady, Sicilian, I mean, she was telling me about their family get-togethers and how many hundreds of relatives they, she had. And, uh, you know, tracing her lineage back for generations, she was horrified that I was adopted, that I didn't know who my birth parents were. She, she proudly proclaimed me to be an honorary Sicilian. She couldn't stand the fact that I was unconnected that way. But that was so much part of her life, of the church, uh, of Rome, and all of its traditions. But she could not see. I mean, the verses I was quoting to her, she'd never seen before. And when I would quote them to her, she, it was like, she had hardly knew what to do with them, particularly at first. And here was a, she was friendly. She was interested. She wanted to know. But she needed the Spirit to give her light. You know, um, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that are like that. They, they don't have light. They go through the world um, not speaking according to God's Word. They don't know God's Word. In some cases, they pointedly ignore it even when it's brought brought to them. But the answer is staring them in the face. Because here are these people that are in the midst of this, these terrible conditions, about to be overrun by the Assyrian Empire. Yahweh warns his prophet and warns us not to walk in the way of this people, as it says in verse 11. Rather, what does he say in verse 16? Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. These two terms are key to understanding this whole revelation that's here. And they're repeated again in our text in there in verse 20. With emphatic force, to the teaching, to the testimony. And with those two terms in mind, we can understand what role... Um, the church has as it relates to God's revealed truth and what sola scriptura, scripture alone, is really all about. The word teaching here is uh, one that uh, you will recognize if I say it to you in Hebrew. It's the word Torah. It means instruction or more commonly, the law. This teaching is the province of the Almighty God. Man is not to add to it upon pain of destruction. As Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2 says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you. The teaching, the truth, the law is God's business. Testimony has the idea of attesting to something or confirming something. And here is the realm of interaction between Yahweh, between his institutional commission of those whom he appoints to be his spokesman, and his people. When God's leaders properly attest to God's own testimony concerning himself, the law, 
As Paul told Timothy, what did he tell Timothy to do? Preach the word. Not preach anything else. Preach the word. And when, and when God's leaders do that, God's people respond in kind, confirming the truth themselves, attesting to the truth themselves of what God has said as that truth is worked out in their own lives. As the uh, prophet Isaiah says here in verse 17, I will wait for Yahweh. I will hope in Him. Those responses of God's people can be and should be examined in light of the teaching in in order to help us stay on track to glorifying God. And when we do that, what is the result? Think about that passage that I just read and what the condition of those who are without God and without hope in the world is. And think about what the result is if we attend to God's word. Instead of dreading the world, you will honor the holy Yahweh. Instead of being trapped in judgment, you have a way of escape. Instead of rage, you have peace. Instead of rebellion, you have contentment. Instead of idolatry, you have reality in the Lord. And instead of shame, there's glory that God gives you. And instead of impenetrable gloom, the prophet says, you have light. You have light. The people who walked in darkness, verse 2, I didn't read that earlier, of chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. In a time when the established church forbade believers from owning or reading the scriptures upon the pain of death, it's called the dark ages for a reason. Every knowledge, area of knowledge suffered from the tyranny of Rome. The reformers knew that they had to return to the proper basis of faith, God's word. Again, not God's word plus man, but God's word. 2 Timothy 3, verses 13 through 17 read this way. Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There you have a beautiful, simple picture of teaching and testimony working together. All scripture then, he goes on to say, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now while the teachings of man may have some value, they have to agree with God's word or they're to be set aside. That is why Rome hates this doctrine. When people start reading the Bible, they can easily see that what they're hearing from the church and what they are reading are not the same at critical points. And so the elaborate house of cards that they've erected comes cascading down. So beloved, get to the teaching and the testimony. It's not just Rome that engages in the error of trying to add to God's word. 
Protestants, unfortunately, evangelicals do it all the time. We've been talking about in Sunday school the way um, certain passages of Scripture get misinterpreted and people just believe it as if it's exactly what God meant. And it isn't at all. But we add to things from our own imaginations, from our own emotions, from our own experiences. And we think that uh, it must be of God because after all, I believe it so firmly. But that's not the way it works. God's Word bears the seal of His Holy Spirit in your heart by His promise. Do not endeavor to replace it with the imaginations of men. Let me close with this uh, additional comment, an admonition from Ryan McGraw that brings this all to bear in, in a very practical way for our hearts. He says, Without the Spirit, even the Scriptures cannot help us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Our minds and hearts are darkened, Ephesians 4, 18, Romans 1, 21. And we need someone to raise us from the dead and turn on the lights, Ephesians 5, 14. If Scripture is sufficient to make us wise for faith and life in Christ, then Scripture alone can be our guide to walking with God. Everything else is both useless and superfluous. Yet we must be born of the Spirit in order to see God's kingdom. John 3, 5. Only through the Spirit working by and with the Scriptures in our hearts can we walk in the light with the God who is light. 1 John 1, 7. We sang a little bit earlier of Jesus Christ, the Word of God incarnate. In Him is the fullness of God revealed uh, most perfectly. It is in Him that we live and move and have our being. And if we are not in Him, then even if we hold to something like Scripture alone, we uh, are lost. We need His mercy to grant us faith and repentance to come to Him. But as we do that, let me urge this upon you. Believe the testimony that God Himself has given in His Word as you read it. Let the Scripture be what it is to be, the only rule of faith and practice in your heart. Attend to the application of His Word as it's faithfully preached. Rejoice in the corresponding testimony of the redeemed people of God around you. Only then will you know Him in all of His glorious light. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is sufficient. That it teaches us those things that You would have us to know. And that You have not left us in the dark, but You've given us Your Holy Spirit, whereby we may come to meet You and to know our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom to know aright is eternal life. Lord, I pray that we would never substitute the wisdom of man for Your wisdom. Lord, let us judge those things that are justly wise and proper that men have said, but let us judge them according to your word so that the teaching and the testimony agree. Let us be hungry for no other source of authority. And we will thank you, Lord, for the joy and the light that you give to us by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.